This is the Marathon Training Academy podcast, episode 409. Thanks to Prevenix, makers of Joint Health Plus, for sponsoring this episode. The main active ingredients are clinically proven to reduce joint pain and improve joint flexibility in just 7 to 10 days. Save 15% by visiting Prevenix.com and using the code MTA. And big thanks to Sidekick, their muscle scraping tools keep your muscles healthy by improving blood flow and help you treat your injury faster. Go to SidekickTool.com. Use the code MTA for 15% off. SidekickTool.com. Thanks also to Oladance Open Earbuds. They have 360 degree superior sound, but never actually enter your ear, so there's no ear fatigue. Visit Oladance.com and use the code MTA20 for 20% off. And finally, thanks to UCAN for sponsoring this episode. UCAN is offering the MTA community an exclusive chance to try six edge gels for free. All you pay for is the cost of shipping. Head over to UCAN.co forward slash MTA to claim this exclusive offer. Hey, hey, welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we help you unlock your running potential and go the distance. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with Lauren Fleshman, retired professional track athlete and author of the book, Good for a Girl. And in the quick tip segment, we talk about can runners benefit from using infrared saunas. And we love to have you train with us and our awesome online community. Find out how to become an Academy member when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. All right, so Angie, the famous Barkley Marathons, the race that eats its young, just wrapped up at the time of this recording, and there were actually three finishers this year. It's been a long time since anyone has ever finished this brutal ultra marathon, but we had three finishers in 2023. That's right. For people who are not familiar with it, it takes place in Frozen Head State Park in the state of Tennessee, and it's notoriously brutal, mostly off-trail route, covers roughly 130 miles, and takes in about 63,000 feet of elevation gain. So basically, it's like running five back-to-back marathons, and they call each marathon a loop. And so runners are allotted 60 hours to complete all of the five loops, and Only 15 runners until this year have successfully finished in the race's 36-year history. Yeah, and if you get accepted into the race, you actually get a letter of condolence. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So this year, Aurelien Sanchez of France finished in 58 hours, 23 minutes, and 12 seconds. Um, A short time later, John Kelly arrived at the finish in 58 hours, 42 minutes, 23 seconds. He became a two-time finisher and one of only three people to have finished the event more than once. Then a bit over an hour later, and with only six minutes to spare in the cutoff, Belgium's Carl Sabe became the third finisher of this year's event. Earlier in the event, Jasmine Paris of the UK became the second woman ever to start the fourth lap of the five-lap event. Pretty amazing. I'm fairly confident in saying that I will never do the Barkley Marathons. (laughs) Well, before we get into our conversation with Lauren Fleshman, let's give some shout outs to folks in the MTA community. Angie, what do you got for us? Yeah, we'd like to say congratulations to a friend of ours named Wayne. Um, We've met up with him and his wife, Sherry, at a couple running events. He got an invitation to the Abbott World Championships this October in Chicago. He is ranked the ninth overall Canadian marathoner in his age group. Wow, that's awesome. And this note comes from Peter. He says, I recently completed the St. Paddy's race held at Pease International Trade Port. I placed first out of one in the 80-plus age division. I'm still looking for some competition. Out of more than 800 runners, I placed fifth out of nine men and women in the 70-plus age group division. It's concerning that there are only a handful of runners that are over the age of 70. I hope all of you young runners and walkers will stick with the moving sports. Yeah, definitely. I like how we call it the moving sports. Yeah, exactly. All moving forward and trying to get the best out of ourselves. Even on vacation. Hey, read this one from Tim who decided to run a marathon on a cruise ship. That's right. He says 288 laps equals a marathon at sea. The last few years I've run my age on my birthday in kilometers since we live outside the U.S. This year my birthday was the day before we boarded a cruise ship en route to the Bahamas. Terribly undertrained, so I knew it would take me a very long time, but I couldn't pass up the chance to go for 42.2 kilometers while on the ship. 
<laughs> Happy 42nd birthday. I think the cruise is a great way to celebrate. And, you know, with all the food that you eat on a cruise, doing a marathon on the ship sounds like a great idea. That's what I told him. I'm like, hey, time to hit the buffet, buddy. <laughs> And finally, shout out to Academy member Debbie. She says, hello, MTA family. I recently completed the Cowtown Challenge, which consisted of a race on Saturday and one on Sunday. I chose to run the 5K Saturday and the 50K Sunday. I started out Sunday with the mindset that I would divide the 50K into four seven-mile runs with an extra 5K at the end. This helps so much. I ran by effort the entire race. When there were hills, I didn't surge up them. I just kept the effort consistent. Because of this, I was able to pass quite a few people in the last few miles. The final mile is uphill, and that was the only one I struggled with a bit, but I stayed pretty consistent. I ran my first and only other 50K in 2018 when I was 49 years old. This weekend at age 54, I PR'd by 39 minutes. It is possible to get faster when you age. Thanks to this community for all of your motivation and support. I get so much inspiration from all of your stories. Next up, 100K in November to celebrate turning 55. Yeah, I like that. Get faster even as you age. Well, congrats to all of you out there putting in the work, whether it's training for your first marathon or maybe you're doing your 50th marathon. We're excited to have you in our audience. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Lauren Fleshman. Angie, what can we tell people about Lauren? Lauren is one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time. She won five NCAA championships at Stanford University and two national championships as a professional. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and Runner's World. She is the brand strategy advisor for Wazelle, a fitness apparel company for women. She's the co-founder of Picky Bars, a natural food company, and she's the coach of Little Wing Athletics in Bend, Oregon. Her book is Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World, and she lives in Oregon with her family. Yeah, this interview dovetails nicely with our last episode with Kara Goucher. Kara and Lauren competed, um, actually competed against each other on several occasions on the collegiate and pro level, and they both saw and experienced unhealthy aspects of the culture around the sport for female elite athletes. We're going to play that conversation with Lauren Fleshman right now. Well on my way. We're on the podcast now with Lauren Fleshman joining us from Oregon. Lauren, how are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Your book is fantastic. We just finished it. And so we're, we're looking forward to jumping in and uh, sharing your story with our listeners. I am excited to hear what stood out to you. <laughs> we always like to ask our guests how they got started as a runner. And of course, that's woven throughout your book. So, you know, it is a long story, but um, <laughs> kind of give us an idea of, you know, what age you were, how you got into running and what that early process looked like for you. Yeah, I think the basics was just that um, I spent a lot of time as a young child loving to run because it is part of every sport and part of play. And I didn't know it was an organized sport of any kind until eighth grade. Um, it never dawned on me. I don't know. I guess it'd probably be impossible nowadays to not know that distance running at least is a sport with road races happening in towns. But in my town, we didn't have like a, a local marathon or road races until I was older, or at least none that I'd ever heard of. I'd never just seen someone recreationally jogging. We didn't live in an area where that was appealing. So, um, but then when I found it as a high schooler, then I fell in love with it as a sport. You grew up in California, right? I did. Southern California, kind of like Northern LA County, concrete jungle mixed in with some like rolling mountains. So at what point did you realize, wow, I'm actually pretty fast and, and good at this? <laughs> <laughs> I think like from a very young age, I knew I was hard to catch. Uh, like just tag and hide, you know, like oh, we would play tag hide and seek. Um, it was just hard to catch me. So it was hard to beat. And I liked that. But then when we did eighth grade and seventh grade middle school mile every week in PE class, I would be the fastest person. And so I was like, oh, wow, I'm pretty good at this. Like it's, um, feels nice to be good at something. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked to a lot of uh, elite runners who there were coaches that had like a premonition way back in the day, hey, you're going to do something with this sport. Like you could be a pro. Did you have anyone to tell you that? Like, hey, you have a lot of potential. You could be a pro runner one day. Uh, well, the first time I had somebody project forward my athletic abilities when I was a softball player, because I always walked 
to first because I, I was very small. I had this tiny strike zone and none of the softball pitchers could strike me out. I, <laughs> I never, I rarely hit the ball, but so I'd always get on first and then I would just steal bases like a mad woman. So I had this <laughs> incredible um, <laughs> reputation for stealing bases. And my coach told me like, you can change gears. You can accelerate so quickly compared to anybody I've ever seen that's going to take you places in sports. And then it was in eighth grade when I did this junior high track meet, the first time I realized that it was a sport. Um, The high school coach, Dave DeLong, came up to me and and told me that I could be really good at at running and that I could be special. And I told him I wanted to play softball in high school. He's like, yeah, maybe you could be a pretty good softball player, but you could be a great runner. Mm -hmm. I think he saw that talent right away. and, And he continued to tell me that throughout my high school career, that I had something really special. So the subtitle of your book is A Woman Running in a Man's World. And that was a really interesting theme that throughout the whole book, you know, because many people know 1972, Title IX is passed, mandates equal sports opportunities for women. But, you know, here we are like 50 years later, 50 years plus, and opportunities, access, coaching still falls far behind in a system that's basically designed for men and boys, like you pointed out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, I guess the question is, how is trying to fit women and girls into our current sports system harmful to them? And what did you experience and see? Yeah, well, I think just backing up a little, the idea of um, equality has been, oh, well, we'll just give you what we've been denying you. Mm-hmm. And what that is, like what we're going to give you is based on the group that's already had it for a long time. So of course it's built around that group. It makes sense. They were the ones that had access to it, right? And so I think it's it's just like we're at a place in our larger picture history where more people have had access to those spaces like sport long enough to see, hey, what does giving everyone the same thing, even in the spaces where we are doing that? Because like you mentioned, there's plenty of places Mm -hmm. where we still are falling short of access. But even in the places where equal access has been around, how are people doing? Like, let's take the temperature here. How are different groups faring in these supposedly equal environments? And what my book aims to expose is now that it's been 50 years since Title IX, Giving girls what boys have in sports actually can be harmful, and the data plays that out. It shows that we're experiencing stress fractures at two to three times the rate of our male peers, twice the levels of anxiety. Um, We're dropping out of sports at twice the rate of boys in middle school. We lose half of female athletes by age 17. So you can get them to show up to the first day, but can you keep them and can you keep them healthy? And Mm. the answer is like overwhelmingly no. Um, And so the promise of sport isn't being fulfilled for girls, women, and female-bodied people. And that's happening in other spaces. I mean, it's happening in (laughs) medicine. Like I get messages Mm -hmm. from female physicians who are like, oh my gosh, I was reading your book, but this is exactly like these systems don't work for if you want to have a child after Mm -hmm. you you have to have a child based on when residency and all these steps of a physician career, they go in this one particular order designed around men. And if Mm -hmm. you want to have a baby, like you totally mess up the whole system. And then that has these cascading effects down the road of less women in leadership positions in the hospitals, less, you know, all of that. So this mm-hmm. is very um, applicable to other industries. So going back to the higher rate of stress fractures, the statistic you mentioned, what causes that? Can we unpack that a bit? Yeah. Well, I don't, there's still ongoing research about why, but we know that bone density is built in, like you build something like 75% of your bone density in that 14 to 18 year old range. It's like huge. And adolescence ends in your mid 20s. So you're still building bone through that phase of life. And that bone bank has to last your entire life. And so running is generally prescribed as an activity for the general population to build bone density. It's a weight bearing activity. It stimulates the bones into making thicker, harder bones. So you'd think that female runners in high school would have the strongest bones of all, and yet they're breaking Mm. at twice the rate. And so what that is related to is inadequate energy intake. So just not eating enough. Well, why aren't female athletes eating enough? Well, there's a whole list of reasons. Some of them relate to their individual bodies. So a changing female body in certain sports, developing breasts, hips, um, more body fat is viewed as a negative to performance. And so they, instead of greeting the development into womanhood as a welcome change, it is greeted as this threat, this thing that could take away their success or the sport that they love. Cause we're looking at puberty through such a short term lens. We're not looking at, okay, yeah, sure. Maybe it, it makes things a little tougher for a couple of years, but then in the end you're having your strongest woman body. 
So they're looking at puberty as a threat. They're restricting their nutrition as a way to stop those changes or reverse those changes. There's also this pressure that applies beyond the female body to all athletes of all genders in leanness-based sports, which is that lighter is faster, lighter Mm. is better. And so boys and girls um, are all like all subject to eating disorders and food restriction problems and stress fractures, but girls are experiencing more of them um, because they're trying to not just look lean for a girl, but to mimic this male idea of excellence. Like if you jump, nothing should jiggle. These kind of absurd ideas that are completely at odds with a female body. So if you're restricting longer and then you're missing your restriction leads to missing your menstrual cycle. If you're missing your menstrual cycle, those hormones are out of whack. Those hormones are critical for immune function, bone building, mental health, libido, like all these other things kind of come crashing down under the surface over time. And so that's that's what's happening. So you have these very young women and often sometimes men who have osteoporosis in their late teens and 20s. Yep. Or they're on their way there. Yeah. And then it's very difficult to make up those lost years. It's like if you don't invest in retirement for your entire <laughs> 20s, that's fine. Plenty of people do it. But like your, your retirement package is going to look a lot different if you were investing during your mm-hmm. 20s, right? So it's one of those things. But then there's actually a third effect on women that men don't experience, which is this societal additional pressure. Well, I guess men experience it in a different way, but we experience for to a large degree, we need to be sexually attractive. Mm-hmm. Our value is in how we look. And um, so there's a lot of body shaming, thinness ideals associated with that. And so even if you're not a female athlete, you're more often restricting your diet to achieve some body standard. Um, and so when you take a female athlete, you're, you're subject to those forces and the forces around performance. I was, as I was reading this, I didn't start running until my late 20s, at least getting serious about it. And I was thinking like for me, how hard it was to go through puberty as a non-athletic female who wasn't like in front of people in a running kit, you know, Mm -hmm. worrying about my weight and my development, you know, and my breasts. And if I'm on my menstrual cycle and like all of that. And I just felt so much compassion about that added scrutiny Mm -hmm. that female runners endure because it it's tough, you know, it's tough to go through that and kind of navigate your way. And, and I feel like you were really kind of saw that early on, even as a very young runner of how there are so many ways to kind of crash and burn, especially when it came to healthy eating and getting adequate nutrition. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you did still struggle through that. Um, looking back, I guess you can't change the past. <laughs> you can only write books like this and educate and help the next generation of women. But where do you feel like you kind of made missteps along the way? I think that I, for a long time, I avoided this misstep that I saw everyone else making, but eventually I bought into the idea that there was an ideal body for performance hmm. and, it, and that I needed to copy someone else's body, that I could look on the internet, find a body that was running fast, then try to look like that body. And then that would give me that success. And um, that was it. That was the change because at that point I outsourced my confidence to a body that wasn't mine. Um, to what the scale said, to what a body fat meter said. I was no longer as moved by how good my workouts were. Whereas before I started adapting that mentality, whether or not I was ready to race was determined by how my season of training went, how my last six weeks of workouts have gone, how confident I felt, how well I was sleeping, stuff like that. And then once the scale got involved or like the, the visual scrutiny, especially mm-hmm. in the mirror, really, really looking for signs that I looked the way I felt I should look, those things could override everything else. I could be convinced if I was two pounds too heavy quote, too heavy, mm-hmm. <laughs> that the last six weeks of workouts didn't matter. Well, like that's destructive for anybody, but especially for females, because mm-hmm. if you have a menstrual cycle, your body fluctuates pretty dramatically. It can fluctuate day to day, week to week, certainly on a monthly basis. And the races are going to fall somewhere on that cycle. You don't get to control when the race happens. <laughs> and so if somebody is telling you, you have something called a race weight and you have a female body, that's so ridiculous because you have more of a race, um, you have a weight range and you need to be able to feel confident competing anywhere in that range. And nobody was telling me that it was yeah. really more like, oh no, the race is happening at the wrong time because I'm going to be the wrong weight. And then you do stupid things like don't drink enough water or like, Mm -hmm. you know, you just try your best to make the scale say what you think it needs to say. 
that was really tough. And then, of course, those choices that I was making nutritionally to achieve that body ended up backfiring and I ended up with stress fracture and then another one and another one um, until I managed to get my nutrition right again. And it's not just about starting to eat well, it's eating well long enough that the parts that you've been damaging under the surface of your skin that you can't see have a chance to catch up and heal and rebuild. And that can take time. That can take six months, two years even. And that's the, the price that I want all young athletes to know that they are going to pay at some point for longer than they want to pay it um, mm-hmm. for something that they may get a little short-term temporary boost in performance from losing a few pounds, but then what happens down the road? And you kind of contrasted really well, like how women are often kind of forced into the male trajectory, especially in college, you know, so as men get this influx of testosterone and increased muscle mass and performance shoots up, whereas female bodies are dealing with something completely different. So maybe in high school, you had all these great performances, and then you get to college at some point, you either plateau or you notice a dip in performance that can cause extreme amount of panic and also mm. negative feedback from coaches, yes. you know, the world in general. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what the, where the irony of it all is, is that we're pathologizing something that is not a problem. Mm-hmm. And because we're so attached to the the male ideal that we fought really hard for access to sports. So we're trying to copy this thing and we're not acknowledging that we have a completely different path that is normal and totally fine. And if we just like set the expectation for athletes right away of, Hey, you're participating in high school sports, for example, this is a time of life that also happens to overlap with the most dramatic developmental changes of your entire life. It's puberty. It's happening. It's happening while you're competing in sports, while you're going to be here for four years. Here's what you can expect. Like, here's what's normal. It's normal to have this period of time of a plateau or a dip that then comes back and then like extend out the lens for them to show them, hey, after that, you're in your strongest body, your fastest, strongest self is on the other side of that. I'm not going to be coaching most of you during that next part, right? Like, I won't get to see the full effects of that. So, what we're going to be doing here is managing a wave um, and you're all going to be hitting it at different times. If you can get athletes to understand that that's part of the sport, it doesn't mean that it won't be disappointing still or there yeah. won't be hard feelings, tricky feelings along the way with that. But there are certainly different ways to coach a team that can still be exciting during that time. Like you can make space for those feelings and then you can say, hey, okay, what are the other 10 ways we can improve that don't have to do with time? Mm-hmm. You're not going to get faster in the mile this year, probably, but like here's 10 other things you can work on that'll improve as an athlete that'll help you now and later. So focusing on getting them to build a solid foundation that is going to pay off literally the rest of their lives and being able to integrate that both physically through nutrition and, you know, mileage and strength training or whatever, but also psychologically and not comparing yourself to people who are on a different trajectory because there is that wide range of how bodies develop. (laughs) Yeah. Think about like, no matter who you are in high school, that's the time of development where you're comparing yourself to your peers the most. Or sometimes middle school, it starts really. I mean, middle school and then high school, like you spend so much time doing that. And then if you think about female bodies going through this wave at different times and males, like I'm just not an expert in males, but you're having to watch your peers do this and that. And some of them are getting slower and some of them are getting faster. And so it's a whirlwind, an Mm -hmm. absolute whirlwind. And so it just really makes me want to reemphasize for parents and coaches that you've got to focus on the other parts, the team culture, the fun. Yeah. And you got to do that when they're running fast and you got to do that when they're not running as fast. Like if you're emphasizing culture and fun throughout the whole period, like mm-hmm. that can be the heartbeat that keeps going through their whole sports experience, no matter what else is going on. Yeah, I, I love that emphasis. I tell my boys a lot, like you have a good body, you know, because there there is those natural comparisons, you know, there's, yeah. I, we have all boys. So there's the 12 year old that has a full beard And then there's the 14 year old who's still in a child's body and, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like, you don't get to control those things. Those things are sometimes are not fair, but the bottom line is we all have a good body and it has so much capability and like kind of projecting into the future. Is this a decision that your future self is going to thank you for? I obviously, I know it's hard probably for coaches because they're focused on, 
winning is yep. is important to both the student athletes and to them. And, and parents can get in there and, you know, cause a whole range of issues as well. Yeah. Um, we all see how parents can cause athletics to go off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to stop and think, does our 12 year old have a beard? No. I was doesn't. like, oh, you're not talking about our 12 year old. I don't even have a full beard. <laughs> so bodies are all different, but they're all good bodies. I think, yeah, that, you I know, whether that. you're, you're developing it's and a comparison trap. You're yeah. You know, mm-hmm. even whether we're in our forties, you know, you start to notice like, Oh, that person is leaner than I am, or this is happening to me. You know, my hair is going great, whatever the issue yeah. is. We, we still can fall into that comparison. Yeah. Trap. Aging hitting us at different times in different ways. And we're all on like, yeah. uh, like I'm in that stage in my forties too, of just noticing yeah. those things. And you're like, what kind <laughs> of middle-aged person am I going to be? What prize journey is am I going to get taken on when? <laughs> exactly. It's like, wow, I feel younger, but like, what is my body doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. Quick break to thank our episode sponsor, Prevenex, makers of Joint Health Plus. It's a supplement that will help you reduce joint stiffness. It'll help you improve your joint flexibility in just seven to 10 days. We're super excited to have Joint Health Plus as a sponsor because as you get older, your joints kind of get cranky. Angie and I are in our, what are we, mid-40s now? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Joint Health Plus has an awesome ingredient called boswellin. It's a powerful, natural, and clinically proven anti-inflammatory and pain reliever that provides additional support for joints. If you go over to their website, you'll see tons of testimonials from runners on how the product has greatly helped their training, performance, and recovery. If you don't experience any benefits within the first 30 days, Prevenix has a no questions asked 100% money back guarantee where you get a full refund. So you literally have nothing to lose except for your joint pain and stiffness. So go over to Prevenix.com. You can use the code MTA for 15% off your first order. See why we love it. Joint Health Plus at Prevenix.com. Hey, another really cool injury prevention and recovery tool is Sidekick. They make foam rollers and muscle scrapers. The type of things that you see at a physical therapy office. That's right. Too many of us runners can tend to ignore the red flags and keep training through pain until it develops into a chronic injury. So it's really nice to have tools on hand to start addressing things right away when you start feeling the discomfort. So if you're suffering from plantar fasciitis, shin splints, IT band tightness, or even knee pain, muscle scraping therapy works by breaking up blocked vessels to heal stress tissues in your body. It's safe, effective for your injury prevention prevention and relief. With Sidekick, you get the benefits of massage, but at home and in minutes. Yeah, and they've got great tutorials on the website so you can see, you know, exactly how to use the Sidekick tools. Check them out at SidekickTool.com and you can get 15% off your order with the code MTA. It's a safe, effective injury prevention and injury relief tool. SidekickTool.com. Use the code MTA for 15% off. So you gave us a, through the book, you gave us like a window into the pressure contracts put on athletes. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of tell us a little bit of how, how those work? I've never had a shoe contract. Unfortunately, I'm still keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still waiting for a, a good beer contract. You know, like maybe <laughs> a good German beer company wants to sponsor me, but basically you get signed by a big shoe company and you're, you're viewed as a marketable asset. Yep. Then there's more pressure, like oh, which body type sells better, which which gets more attention and more eyeballs. And so like all feeds into this vicious circle. Yeah. So there's just like a room of people who work at the companies who get their budget handed down to them and then they decide how they're going to spend it. And athletes are one of many of the ways they spend it, you know, billboards and commercials and all of those things. But athletes are one of them. And so depending on who's in that room and how they've been socialized and what their incentives are at work who their bosses are and what they're incentivized by and how they've been socialized. Those are the things that end up determining who gets paid and who doesn't get paid. Mm -hmm. And at a company like Nike that was built by men and for men in a men's sports space, and they've certainly been active in women's sports from like an early time. Um, So kudos to them on that, but it's still in their DNA. They have not had authentic voices at the top of Nike. I mean, they still have extremely few and extremely mm-hmm. few voices of color. So it's like mm-hmm. you're, you are working against an uphill battle to have every single one of them in that room, in that headspace. And um, having the representation in those rooms, having just one more woman in the room would have made a difference. Um, when there's one woman in a space, they're generally trying to survive. And the way you survive is to take on the belief systems and not stand out. Like you have to kind of protect your space. So you tend mm-hmm. to blend in and go along with the predominant 
um, stuff. So that's what happened. So yeah, it's like, who is sexy to a straight white man? Um, and that's why the middle distance races and the pole vault are disproportionately invested in because they have a lot of white women and they have a lot of white women whose bodies look the closest to what you'd see in a magazine at, that, of someone that isn't an athlete of what our culture has been valuing. Yeah. I mean, it, that's pretty much it. And then you, then you get a contract and then you have to try to run fast enough to keep it. <laughs> Right. Oh, and the pressure we, really starts to increase yeah, can we, too. <laughs> can you talk about that? So what, what did that look like for you? Contract reductions and so forth. And how does that work? Well, right away, it's made very clear that you need to perform at a certain level. And this isn't how all companies work. Like I signed with a feminist brand, women's brand, Wazelle in 2013, and I've been with them for 10 years now, and they don't have contracts like that. Mm-hmm. But most of the big sports brands, that they're performance-based, and you need to hit certain markers to have a certain national ranking or world ranking in order to continue to get paid and show up for a certain number of promotional events and a certain number of races per year. But then if there's things like if you have uh, an injury or something that keeps you from racing for more than six months at a high level, you can be cut or or put on suspension or severely reduced. Half your pay could be gone. Well, pregnancy lasts nine months. Mm -hmm. Um, Postpartum, the, the fourth trimester is another three. So that pretty much means anybody who wants to get pregnant and have a child is going to get suspended, cut, or severely reduced. There was no mention of pregnancy in any of the sports contracts. Mm-hmm. And that's how they treated it, like a severe injury. If anybody who's ever tried to do anything hard knows that there's ups and downs. There always are downs. Mm-hmm. And the contract world can be very ruthless by not providing a space where you are allowed to have any downs. Um, it's almost like they're counting on you to have a down so they can cut your pay and then they can divert the money elsewhere. Like it's a very it can be a very disposable industry. And when you're young, you don't realize that. You're kind of like, oh yeah, I'll just stay healthy every year and keep getting better. It'll be great. Wow. So you sign a contract, it's your livelihood, but then if you don't perform on race day, let's say you happen to get injured or for yeah. a female, you have, you know, it's that time of the month and you, yeah. you, you just don't have the energy that you would normally have. Yeah. That's my best way to describe it. Never experiencing yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's accurate. Yeah. You get your <laughs> okay. period at like the, an inopportune time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so, a lot of stress among female athletes about when a competition is going to be held and when they're mm-hmm. due for their period. And that's part of the reason why a lot of athletes um, are happy when they lose their period. Like when they're training mm-hmm. so hard and not eating enough and they lose their period, it's like one less thing to worry about. Yeah. Um, but then there's all that stuff happening under the surface that's going to come up and catch up to them later. But you can live in a state of denial of like, oh, well, it won't happen to me. I'm still eating my calcium chews and mm-hmm. drinking, you know, eating my yogurt. So I'm getting enough calcium. Uh, you, you do little bargains with the devil. <laughs> right. <laughs> And then, so on race day, then you have this pressure. Like if I don't perform well, my pay could be cut by, you know, $25,000. And you're already putting a lot of pressure on yourself because, you know, you don't get to that level without being hard on yourself and really wanting to get the best out of yourself. Yeah. They're tough financials. I don't know. I'm sure there's other industries that are very feast or famine like that and high stakes Mm -hmm. and there are people who would argue that that's part of the drama of sport and that's just how it is and deal mm. with it. Um, I'm not one of those people. Like I'm kind of <laughs> like, well, it doesn't have to be like that. Like you look at women's soccer and um, WNBA and NBA and men's soccer and there's league minimums. There's some amount of guaranteed security mm-hmm. and then there's an upside from there. And the, the league minimums might be pretty low. But like you're not going to be on food stamps on those. You're going right. to you're at least safe for the season until contract negotiation time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like there's th- definitely things we could do to improve it. And you're not going to have your health care cut when you really need it if you're injured or yes. pregnant or whatever the, the mm-hmm. issue is. Yep. So do you think if like things had gone really like been smooth sailing with Nike and you hadn't struggled with injury, you probably wouldn't have been able to take this very brave path forward in signing with a relatively unknown company like Wazelle and starting your own company. So a lot of your strength has been forged the hard way. Yes. Um, But of course, you probably wouldn't trade any of the lessons. The richness of that is so much more than if everything had gone smoothly. Yeah. If everything had gone smoothly, I would have continued the myth, the belief, the myth that sport was fine as it was. The people who weren't thriving, it was because they were doing something wrong. Right. Um, Because that's what humans tend to do. Like we 
unfortunately, more often than not, need to experience the problem ourselves before we believe the problem is real. Mm. And then we're like, oh, yeah, that is actually a problem. And all those people that have been, I've thought of as complaining about it, actually, there was something to that. And it'd be nice if collectively as humans, we could get better at just like not needing to experience everything directly, Mm -hmm. truly hear and listen to the people who are trying to tell us how they're suffering in a system. So that from what you're saying, I agree, like the struggles that I had were what made possible the understanding that led to the book, that led to a partnership with Wazel, that led to, you know, from pain can come like curiosity of how to prevent the pain again. It's the um, social and emotional version of the hot stove. You know, you touch a hot stove and you have pain and you don't want to touch the hot stove again. So then you become motivated to change your behavior. What factors led you to becoming a running coach? I mean, do you feel like you were kind of reluctantly came into that or did it come naturally? I mean, what was that process like for you? I was very reluctant. (laughs) I think I just, I didn't have a lot of confidence that I could coach professional athletes. Um, Mm. I think some of that is gendered, like when they've done the research that men will apply for a job if they meet 70% of the qualifications on the job posting and women need to meet 100% before they'll apply for the job. And um, there's also research that like when women get head coaching jobs in college, they're given fewer years to prove themselves before they're um, replaced than rookie male coaches. So some of it's in our head. We're afraid that we're not qualified enough. And then some of it is actually real where we're it's confirmed. We're more likely to be punished if we don't like get it done really well right away because they feel like they're taking a risk on you as a woman in, mm. a, in a field dominated by men. So all of that impacted me, I think, in feeling less confident becoming a coach. But then, I don't know, it was actually Bob Lesko, who was my mentor and one of the people that invested in Wazal, was like, do you think that the coach of NAZ Elite was like, oh, I I need to make sure I can be like an amazing coach before I dip my toe into elite coaching? (laughs) No, he started doing it. Like, do you think Chris Miltenberg? Do you think Vin LaNana? Do you think like, no, just jump in. Coaching is learning on the job. So Mm -hmm. get in there. Experience is the best teacher often <laughs> for good <Yeah>. or ill. <laughs> There's high stakes like learning on professionals that, that I knew because I, I knew how short the window of time you have to chase your dreams as a mm. professional is. And so I also had this feeling of like, if they're trusting me with the, this very short window of their life and the stakes are this high, like I want to make sure I could do right by them. Mm. You competed in the New York City Marathon in 2011. Yep. Have you done the marathon again? Have you been back to that distance? I did uh, Boston last year as a charity athlete for Girls on the Run Greater Boston. Oh, that's awesome. What was your experience like there? Oh, well, it was my first Boston and second overall marathon and dramatically different preparation, as in I didn't prepare adequately the second time. So (laughs) I was suffering from mile 10 on and I did all the things wrong. I just got carried away. I started running seven minute miles when I hadn't been training for seven minute miles and it was just like, but this pace feels good on my body. Maybe I'm the exception. Maybe I'll be able to just roll it all the way to the finish line. And I just was like laughing at myself. It was really nice to not be a professional elite athlete in that situation because mm-hmm. I could take those risks. I could suffer the consequences and still laugh at myself. Yes. Um, like no one's going to care if you're walking, you know, no. like the stakes are low. The stakes are low. And I did walk and I cried and I did all the things that people do when they hit the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was definitely going to cross that finish line and, mm-hmm. and it felt very hard earned when I did. I was like, wow. Okay. I earned that one for sure. I'm proud of it. <laughs> okay. So now everyone listening is like, you know, I'm glad you said that because that's how it felt for me. It was hard earned. Well, and when you're an elite athlete, finishing 26 miles truly isn't hard. Like when you're a trained professional athlete, it is mind blowing to me how different it feels when it's your job and you're doing it every single day. So when I see it, when people are like, God, it looks so easy for them. I'm like, well, it it kind of is. It's just the level of commitment and training. It's like, that's our job. That's all they do. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. Yeah. I am amazed when you watch someone like Elliot Kipchoge run across the finish line and he's still got plenty of energy. It looks like he could do it all again, like do a second lap. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure he could do some amount of it. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm like looking for a place to sit down as soon yes, as I cross the finish line. Exactly. <laughs> I'm well, looking for food. Yeah, That's what taking I'm looking Twizzlers for. from spectators and yes. homemade lemonades and just being like, I'm going to stop for some high fives. It's way more fun than it's fun to be really fast. 
for mm-hmm. sure to like win things. That's fun. But this is more fun being on this side of it, running in a recreational oh, cool. way, just because of the love of it to push yourself. It's way more fun. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I guess let's end on this. Would you have any just words of encouragement for someone who hasn't run their first marathon yet, or maybe just getting into the sport here, long distance running? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, if you're just getting into the sport, you got to give it a couple months because it's, it is a thing that isn't fun until you get to a certain level of fitness, mm-hmm. uh, which you just need to do through repetition. But then once yeah. you get like over this first hump of fitness where you can have like a reasonably breathless conversation with a friend, um, <laughs> it gets a lot more fun. And mm-hmm. when you need fewer walk breaks and stuff like that, and you, you start climbing up into five, six miles, like distances you've never done before, like you, you get that positive feedback and it feels like less of a chore. Yeah, that's great advice. Running can take you in so many different directions. It can be as unique as each individual is. Yep. Yeah. So if we want to send people out there on the internet to find you and get a copy of the book and keep up with what you have going on, uh, where can we send them? Um, LaurenFleshman.com will show you places you can buy the book and um, blurbs from people who read the book and provided endorsements and a description of it. If you want to learn more um, you can get it anywhere books are sold. So just an audible, I recommend the audible because I recorded it myself. And Ooh, cool. if you're nice. a runner and you're listening to this, you <laughs> probably have some time in when you're running to listen. And I've been told that the book is a nice companion on a run. What is that like to record an audiobook for audible? Do you have to just get every sentence perfect? And there's a lot of like retakes and stuff and well, what we do is like, three, I did it in three, five hour days. So it's a lot of talking and you get um, like an iPad or a display screen that has what you're going to do and you, you just read it. And then if you make a mistake, you go back to the previous sentence and start from that sentence again. And you then you just carry on. And the editor who's listening marks every time you make a mistake on their script. And then they go back later and they edit. Then you come in for pickups where all the things that had been marked that you hadn't addressed yet, like maybe you slurred a word or you said the wrong word, nobody noticed it at the time. And mm. they catch them all, hopefully. <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> the auditory goal. version of a typo. And then you come in and they have like all these little clips of the places where there were mistakes and they play them for you. So you can hear what tone of voice you were using at the time if you were excited or like slower paced or whatever. And then you re-record the sentence before, during and after it so that they can put it back in and have it be seamless. Wow. Yeah. I remember talking to uh, Dina Castor when her book came out and there was a name that she mispronounced. It was, you know, it was like an author that she referenced or something. I don't remember, but she told this story. She mispronounced the name and so had to drive all the way back to LA from her house to get into this booth to do a retake on that one word. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm just shocked they didn't have any recording place closer than that. Yeah, I know. I know. That's <laughs> brutal because mine was 20 minute drive from my house. Mm-hmm. But I guess when you live in Mammoth Lakes, there's probably less. Yeah. yeah. Well, Got to have the same sort of sound quality and control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it sounds like an endurance event of its own accord, you know, <laughs> yeah. like writing the book was its own endurance challenge. Yeah. And then, of course, then promoting it, you know, that's another right. another challenge. So another wave. <laughs> and then the, the next wave is figuring out how to do some sort of action that can yeah. help the book go to the next level. And mm-hmm. I think just I get so many questions from parents and coaches and sports psychologists and dietitians and pediatricians. And they're just like, I'm appalled. (laughs) I have so many feelings now. Yes. What can I do? I'm nobody's boss, right? So I I can't tell them what to do. But I I also feel like saying, I don't know, figure it out to every person that tells me that is, is not going to be the best way for what I really care about to happen, mm-hmm. which is like mm-hmm. change. I want change. I want it to be better. I want 20 years from now, someone to pick up this book and be like, this book makes no sense. And <laughs> right. things are it really sucked back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Like she sounds really worked up about nothing. I don't uh... <laughs> Well, I think this, that the book, it's a good conversation starter and we need to be having these conversations and it's going to play out in different arenas and in different people's lives in different ways. But starting to have those conversations mm-hmm. is where change begins. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our community and your story. I know it's going to be very impactful for people. Oh, thanks for bringing me to your community. I appreciate it. <laughs> you bet. Good luck on the book sales and everything that comes next. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lauren Fleshman. Definitely check out her memoir, Good for a Girl. In just a moment, Angie's going to talk about if sitting in an infrared sauna is good for runners. Before we do that, quick word of thanks to our awesome podcast sponsor, youcan.co. We love these guys. We've got a half marathon coming up in Vegas. This time, Angie, I'm not going to forget my UCAN at home, <laughs> so I won't bonk. We'll see. <laughs> So I'm doing a half marathon, so I'll probably take one gel before I start and then carry two with me. That's pretty much all I need for a half or maybe two bars. I also love the bars. I'll eat like one before the race. If there's not a lot of time in between when I get up and when I start running, I'll just go on an empty stomach, have one UCAM bar, and then I'll carry one with me and eat during the half. And I'm good to go. If you haven't tried UCAN Edge Gel, here's your chance to try it. That's right. UCAN's offering all you guys an exclusive chance to try six edge gel samples for free. All you pay is the cost of shipping. This is an amazing deal. UCAN's award-winning edge energy gel lasts longer than other gels and provides a more consistent feeling of energy. And they have zero sugars, so they aren't too thick or sweet, and they don't leave that really cloying taste in your mouth. So to get a sample pack with six edge gels for free, just pay shipping. Head over to UCAN.co slash MTA. UCAN.co slash MTA. And thanks also to Oladance Wearable Stereo. They provide true comfort. And if you like to listen to podcasts and music while you run, if you listen to stuff for two hours a day or more, they are a must-have. Since they don't actually go in your ear, it reduces ear fatigue. But don't take my word for it. Take Angie's word for it. <laughs> Very she clever. Lis- she listens to audiobooks all day, every day. I don't even know if she's listening to me or something in her earbud half the time. If you start talking, I always pause my earbuds. Oh, thanks. So you take priority. Uh, Yeah, I had a pair of earbuds previous to these that I thought I liked really well. And I haven't touched them since I got the Oladance open earbuds because the sound is so superior and the comfort is so much better because they're not actually in your ears. And you've been running with them too. Yeah, they stay secure on my ears for any type of activity, even yoga where you're in down dog and things like that. Yeah, so check them out, Oladance, wearable stereo. You can find them at oladance.com and use the code MTA20 to save 20%. Listen to what you love and never lose track of what's happening around you. Give them a try, oladance.com. Use the code MTA20 for 20% off. Well, now it's time for this episode's quick tip. It's been a long time since we had a quick tip segment. We're going to talk about infrared saunas. Can runners benefit from using infrared saunas? We do not have a a sauna sponsor, although I wish we did. (laughs) We happen to have an infrared sauna we bought a couple years ago. But uh, what's the point and can runners benefit from? I'm guessing the answer is yes. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. Yes, it would be a very short, quick tip if I did not believe in the benefits of it. Um, it kind of falls into the general topic of recovery and recovery aids. And obviously that holds a lot of appeal to us as runners because we're only able to improve to the extent that we're able to recover efficiently between workouts. And sauna use is one of those items that shows great promise in promoting recovery. And like you said, Trevor, we've owned a sauna for three years now, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people might be wondering, we have a Finleo. The sauna was invented by the Finns. So I thought, hey, let's buy one from a Finnish company. It's a two-person sauna, infrared. So how does the infrared sauna differ from a regular one? Well, unlike a regular sauna, which increases the temperature of the air, infrared heat is a type of energy that's transmitted by electromagnetic waves that occur in the infrared spectrum. So basically, when infrared waves come in contact with an object, like a person sitting in the sauna, the waves are absorbed and converted into thermal radiation or heat. The heat has the ability to penetrate deep into the muscles, providing physical benefits to the athlete. And it does this at lower temperatures than traditional saunas. So I thought I would provide a quick overview of some of the benefits. The first one is that it reduces muscle soreness and stiffness. According to Dr. Brian Cole of the Sports Medicine Weekly, Quote, infrared saunas have long been known for their ability to deliver a unique therapeutic warmth that penetrates deep into the muscles and joints of the body to help ease stiffness and reduce soreness. The infrared light used in these saunas is admitted at wavelengths that are roughly five times longer than those of traditional saunas, allowing it to reach far deeper into the tissues of the body and provide better relief from various aches, pains, and muscle fatigue. Studies even show that regular infrared sauna use can help certain conditions like soft tissue rheumatism by easing inflammation and improving circulation. 
there are also studies that are being done that show positive benefits for people who suffer with chronic pain. The second benefit is that they are shown to improve circulation and oxygenation. As your body heats up, blood vessels widen and there's increased blood flow. Basically, improved blood circulation brings more blood to the muscles, which can speed up repair after workouts. The third benefit is that it enhances recovery and performance. The ability to recover more quickly can have performance benefits because then you're able to train at a higher level. A study entitled Effects of Post-Exercise Sauna Bathing on the Endurance Performance of Competitive Male Runners found, quote, we conclude that three weeks of post-exercise sauna bathing produced a worthwhile enhancement of endurance running performance, probably by increasing blood volume, end of quote. And finally, it's been shown to fight off illness. There's evidence that regular sauna use can help you avoid the common cold, says Dr. Young. Saunas also reduce oxidative stress, which is associated with cardiovascular disease, cancer, and degenerative diseases like dementia. So I think there are some pretty awesome benefits right there. Of course, if you have pre-existing conditions, please check with your doctor before using a sauna. Individuals with multiple sclerosis are often heat intolerant and should generally avoid saunas. Sauna use is also contraindicated for pregnant individuals and those trying to conceive as sperm may be damaged. Note that research shows that it takes female bodies longer to notice sauna benefits. That's because it takes a higher internal temperature to initiate sweating, and this will vary during the different phases of the menstrual cycle. Dr. Stacy Sims says that the average male will experience benefits after five sauna sessions, while females will need approximately nine to 10 sessions to experience benefits. So there you go, a topic that we've never discussed before, the use of infrared saunas. You can even find them on Amazon. They make them like one-seaters too, so if you have a small space. And since it's not a steam sauna, so we're not dealing with moisture in the air and stuff, or you don't have to like have burning coals. Like Steam saunas are really cool as well. We enjoy those. But since it was going to be indoors in our house, in our basement, we went for the infrared, plus of everything that we had read and heard about, the benefits of infrared. That brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you for being a listener. Send us an email anytime you got a question or want to share your running story with us. We have a contact form on our website, marathontrainingacademy.com. We're going to sign off with this. You have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.